Ladies and gentlemen, if I could have your attention, we will now turn to um, a fantastic keynote speaker for the conference, and that is Ambassador Ryan Crocker. Ambassador Crocker is currently an executive professor at Texas A&M. From 2010 to 2011, and from 2013 to 16, he served as dean and executive professor at the George Bush School of Government and Public Service at Texas A&M, where he was holder of the Edward and Howard Cruz Endowed Chair. Ambassador Crocker retired from the Foreign Service in April 2009 after a career of over 37 years, but was recalled to active duty by President Obama to serve as U.S. Ambassador to Afghanistan in 2011. He has served as U.S. Ambassador six times. Afghanistan, 2011-2012. Iraq, 2007-2009. Pakistan, 2004-2007. Syria, 1998-2001. Kuwait, 1994-1997 and Lebanon, 1990-1993. It would be hard to imagine anyone with a better understanding of the region. Ambassador Crocker um, was born in Spokane, Washington. He grew up in an Air Force family, attending schools in Morocco, Canada, and Turkey, as well as the United States. He received a BA in English in 71 and an honorary Doctor of Laws degree in 2001 from Whitman College in Washington. Member of the Council on Foreign Relations, the American Academy of Diplomacy, and the Association of American Ambassadors. In August 2013, he was confirmed by the United States Senate to serve on the Broadcasting Board of Governors, which oversees all U.S. government-appointed and supported civilian international media. He is also on the board of directors of Mercy Corps International. Most importantly, and this suggests in addition to this extraordinary career, uh, we're in the presence today of someone very, very, very special indeed. He received the Presidential Medal of Freedom, the nation's highest civilian award in 2009. And I'm sure the Marines in the, in the room will uh, take heart to this and think that this is uh, equally, if not more important. He was named an honorary Marine, the 75th civilian so honored since the founding of the Corps in 1775. Ambassador Crocker. Well, uh, thank you, Professor Moore, for that uh, very generous introduction. Let me start now by lowering your expectations. Um, uh, thanks for having me here. Um, what uh, uh, Professor Graham and you have put together, I think, is uh, it's not possible for it to be more relevant or, or timely as uh, a new administration <clears throat> looks at a, uh, a very complex uh, world uh, and tries to come to uh, uh, to grips with it. 
I say just a couple of things. What, what I'm going to do here is not a prepared speech because I knew if I prepared a speech, A, it would be hard work and I, I avoid that. Uh, but B, it would be completely overtaken by what we discussed this morning. So I'm going to comment on some themes that uh, 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 were, were laid out by my colleagues then. I, I just say something about um, my, my years in the Foreign Service. Uh, this audience being a notable exception, most, most Americans don't, um, don't really know they have a Foreign Service, uh, let alone what it does. Um, so I was an ambassador six times, um, uh, leading my friends to believe that I must have contributed substantially to the losing party in a presidential election. Uh, um, you know, they were all hard places. Um, uh, I wound up spending um, seven years after 9-11 between Iraq, Afghanistan, and Pakistan. Um, the only American to be ambassador to all three countries in the post 9-11 era. It's truly the trifecta from hell. Uh, <laughs> uh, so here are two interesting factoids. Um, three times I was an ambassador for Republican administrations and three times for Democratic administrations. Uh, just like our military, um, the American people and indeed um, elected officials have to be able to count on a foreign service that, you know, non-elected and therefore <clears throat> sworn to serve those who were elected. Uh, uh, the second factoid is a little grimmer. <clears throat> In three of those six countries, a predecessor of mine as American ambassador was assassinated. Um, Lebanon, Pakistan, Afghanistan. <clears throat> so. Expeditionary diplomacy, which is the kind that is required now of the Foreign Service in this tumultuous world, is inherently dangerous. Um, and we collectively, certainly the service, which does, our elected leaders and the American public um, have to understand that if the Foreign Service is doing its job, it's going to be in those critical places where there is a, a danger factor. And to me as a career professional, the very worst thing about the congressional Benghazi hearings was that it, it, it's pushed, I think, any elected official um, or any secretary of state to a zero risk, zero sum approach to diplomacy. That if you lose a diplomat, um, it's, it's a criminal act. And we're going to have to try and claw our way out of that. Uh, uh, Jim Mattis, a friend for many years, is. Uh, well positioned to do that. He, uh, I think his last uh, uh, Senate Armed Service Committee hearing in uniform uh, uh, contained this, this wonderful line directed to uh, Chairman McCain uh, saying, Mr. Chairman, I do hope that the Senate uh, approves the full State Department budget request because if you don't, I'm going to have to buy a lot more bullets. Uh, uh, we have a lot of Foreign Service officers um, who have law degrees, and for the law students in the room, you know, think about that. Uh, there are two ways you can do it, of course, uh, certainly in the legal advisor's office, uh, but also becoming a commissioned Foreign Service officer. Uh, so just tuck that away somewhere. Um, uh, let me start with a couple of comments. Um, uh, 
again, we uh, talked a bit about this at, at the table. Colonel, Colonel Houston laid out the CENTCOM AOR, and then, well, you did have truth in advertising. You, uh, you, you, you tacked Libya onto it um, uh, while acknowledging that it was not, in fact, yours. Um, uh, we have AOR asymmetry, asymmetry, which is, has plagued me for most of my career. Because uh, the State Department AOR is not anywhere near identical to the CENTCOM AOR. Um, uh, you have all the stands. Uh, we stopped just short of that. We've got all of North Africa, um, which, as you point out, goes to AFRICOM. So trying to sync all this up, uh, you know, a combatant commander may have to talk to three ambassadors um, and, and vice versa. So this is kind of a plea to the up-and-coming in the military. That would be you, Colonel Houston. Uh, you know, can we get this fixed? Can we, can we bring at least that much rationality to the world? Um, Another point you made, uh, which is one I have made independently, is yes, indeed, uh, all of our games are away games. Uh, obviously, that's how you want it. Uh, but if you are playing away games, you really have to know the other side's ground rules. Um, you're walking into a stadium, they know it, you don't, so you've got to be ready. Um, and all too often, we're not. Um, uh, Americans are a great people. We have done great things in our own country and abroad. And we did it by, don't talk to me about yesterday. Talk to me about today and tomorrow. That's, that's how we built this country. Um, the, the phrase, that's history, is a pejorative. History counts. Um, and I was delighted with your extraordinarily uh, capable new dean that, that she has had a history of, of uh, uh, judicial and legal history. Uh, this stuff counts. Uh, William Faulkner famously said about the American South, the past isn't dead, it's not even past. And so it is for the AOR um, that we're focused on. Uh, uh, people of that region know their history. They know their history according to them. Uh, we all too often deploy in a major way without having a single idea of what came before. Um, so away games, yes. Be prepared for them. Uh, know the history. Above all else, as uh, Professor Moore and I were just uh, discussing, know the language. Um, because if we're ahistorical, uh, uh, where most of us uh, uh, are determined monolinguists. Uh, so if the foreigners don't understand you the first time, um, say it slower and louder um, until they can pick up on it. It's, it, it's, it is a huge problem. Uh, uh, you know, not, not so much for state. Every Commissioned Foreign Service Officer has to be uh, professionally fluent in at least one foreign language. Um, uh, but it is a problem for uh, America at large. And to give you a perspective on that, because I do think this is important, can you imagine what you would think um, if you were listening to a Chinese speaker uh, purported to be his country's greatest effort or expert on 
uh, the United States, and he had to deliver his remarks through an interpreter. You, you know, you'd laugh at it, but we do that all the time. Uh, you know, turn on any news channel. Um, you know, the so-called experts uh, do not know those languages, and if you do not know the language, that's going to be a closed room for you, um, because it, uh, linguistic capability opens up a door to culture, history, aspirations, fears that you're never really going to get a full grip of um, otherwise. So um, the language stuff is really, really important, as is understanding uh, uh, the history and the culture, as it is perceived in the region. Uh, how many of you have heard of a book called um, The Crusades Through Arab Eyes? It's written by a uh, Franco-Libanese named um, Amin Malouf. And what he has done painstakingly is reconstruct the history of the Crusades as Arab historians recorded it. You will not recognize at all uh, the campaigns he's talking about. So. You got to know this stuff, but you also have to know how it's perceived. Um, okay, in no particular order, um, I want to emphasize a uh, very important point uh, Jessica McFate made. Uh, uh, American staying power, or lack thereof. Um, it gets really, really key. Now, before turning to the region, I'll situate this, situate this more broadly. Um, uh, this is the 100th anniversary of um, a lot of not truly great things, uh, uh, like um, the Sykes-Picot Agreement, uh, 1916, in which the British and the French um, basically carved up the post-World War I uh, Middle East region into spheres of uh, French or British uh, uh, predominance. Um, the Balfour Declaration, 1917. Uh, uh, His Majesty's government looks with favor on the establishment of a Jewish homeland. Um, and it's the 100th anniversary, more or less, of the uh, Hussein McMahon uh, Accords. This was uh, Sharif of Mecca, uh, that Hussein in which um, uh, McMahon basically said, we are going to support the creation of an independent Arab state or states. Um, well, none of those things happened. Uh, what was the US doing then? You know, not much. Uh, uh, Woodrow Wilson's health was um, already on the ebb, and the French and the British wanted nothing to do with an America engaged in that region. So he was effectively uh, frozen out. So what did we get? Um, basically a two-decade ceasefire before the next major European war. Um, we came out of that war in a completely different position. Um, uh, Harry Truman got it, uh, even though he was, of course, brand new in the office. Um, that the U.S. was going to have to be internationally engaged in a way it never was before. Uh, this didn't have anything to do with the Middle East region. It had, to do, had everything to do with the Soviet Union, um, including in the Middle East. So that touched off a, um, 
an historical period of U.S. engagement in, in the region and globally, primarily to um, confront the Soviet Union. But that's, that's not all it did. Um, yes, we had interventions uh, directed at the Soviets at that time, but we continued on with, with interventions where it seemed to make sense. Uh, uh, take the first Gulf War. There still was the Soviet Union, but it, the liberation of Kuwait had, of course, nothing to do with the Cold War, which is effectively over anyway. And, and we, you know, we carried on with these things. Um, uh, you know, Bosnia. Uh, President Clinton, I think, rightly said, this is a European problem. Has to be a European resolution. Except, tragically, there wasn't. And we did have to step in. Um, it is not accidental that uh, the um, agreements on Bosnia were signed in Dayton, not in Paris, you know, not in Berlin, uh, Dayton, Ohio. The U.S. had to lead. Uh, Kosovo, uh, the same thing. Um, Operation Vigilant Warrior. Anybody in the room remember that? that that's the war we didn't fight. Uh, Kuwait, Columbus Day weekend, 1994. Um, the station chief comes in to my office and says, you're really not gonna like this. Uh, we had picked up uh, the movement of a multi-division force um, heading south uh, with uh, ammo uploaded, uh, not configured as an exercise force, but as a fighting force. Uh, and it was one of those uh-oh moments. Um, uh, Benny P was the commander, central command then. Uh, we were trying to get uh, soldiers out to fall in on a um, pre-positioned brigade, armored brigade set. Uh, uh, he had a two-star out there, uh, are sent forward to coordinate that. Um, he was working the really important piece, which is back in Washington. And one phone call, he concluded by saying, um, and whatever you do, do not let General X get decisively engaged uh, before we can bring up reinforcements. Uh, you know, retreat if you have to, uh, but don't let him get decisively engaged. This is not a normal part of the ambassador's uh, portfolio, but it is a Paul Mill world. Uh, uh, and I had to take what was possibly the biggest chance of my Foreign Service career to decide whether uh, we should evacuate the American community, um, which would have made a, an invasion a certainty, um, or to stand fast and pray to God we were decisive enough and quick enough uh, to back off Saddam. And that's what we did. Um, uh, President Clinton made an immediate decision uh, to deploy the troopers to fall in on that pre-positioned equipment. And I figured Saddam was trying to see what President Clinton was made of. Uh, that if he vacillated, he'd keep coming. If he stood, he'd make a sharp right turn and actually turn it into an exercise. Uh, so that's the war that didn't happen. Um, I, I retail all of this because the tradition of kind of liberal engagement by America in the Middle East was consistent from Harry Truman 
up through George W. Bush. Wasn't always filled with good ideas, like the 2003 invasion of Iraq, uh, but it was philosophically consistent. Um, President Obama started taking us to a very different place. Um, and I, I believe me, I'm not doing this in any partisan way. This is just how I saw it as a professional. Uh, you know, that maybe that era's over. Maybe the U.S. should stop trying to um, run the world, be the world's policeman. Uh, so since 2009, we've kind of seen this disengagement, um, uh, certainly in the Middle East, uh, but elsewhere as well. Not, not total disengagement, not isolationism, certainly. Uh, but here, President Obama and President Trump can sound remarkably alike, uh, both critical of NATO uh, as a bunch of free riders. Uh, President Obama referred publicly to Saudi Arabia as our so-called ally. Um, we've never had a national debate on this, uh, but if we're going to shift away from a 60-plus year pattern of American leadership and engagement, it'd be nice to talk about it first. Um, and be very interested in some of your, uh, uh, your comments on this, uh, because it is a different place now. Uh, we don't know what President Obama, or President, uh, <laughs> yeah, longing for the good old days, uh, what, what President Trump will decide in the, uh, the furor and chaos of his first month, uh, many people like me overlooked the fact that he had meetings with six or seven heads of state or government and called more than a dozen more. Uh, that was probably more than President Obama did in a year. Uh, so maybe he is a, a um, closet engagist, if you will. Um, I, I certainly hope so. Uh, so, you know, are we in or are we out? And, and what are the consequences? Uh, Iraq, when I left in 2009, after two pretty stressful years, it was tracking pretty good. Um, They'd had their second provincial council election. Second elections are often more important than first because they have incumbent losers. So the losers, you know, cried foul and fraud, and then they cleaned out their desks and said, we'll be back. So I was feeling pretty good about things. And then the world sort of changed. So the space we once um, held is now held by Islamic State in the West, uh, and Iranian-backed uh, Shia militias, including a lot of leaders who have American blood on their hands in the center and the south. Uh, uh, I, I would argue as a national security proposition, that's not a great place to be. Um, so I just would like you to tuck that away somewhere, that uh, uh, the discussion we're having on Islamic State uh, resides in a a much larger and strategically significant context. Um, uh, so, let me just say a few things um, uh, about, about some of the um, issues we covered this morning. Uh, if I had to use a single word to describe the root cause of the um, situation in the Middle East, it would be governance or more accurately, failure of governance. Um, uh, 
over the last hundred years, just about everything possible has been tried. I uh, call it the, the failure of isms. Um, uh, colonialism under the British and French failed to provide good governance. Um, uh, monarchism, uh, with monarchs basically installed by the British or French in uh, places like Libya, Egypt, Iraq, didn't, didn't turn out so well for those so-called um, royal families. Arab nationalism, uh, uh, which followed the overthrow of monarchies in, in both Egypt and uh, uh, Iraq, uh, a lot of nice slogans, life didn't get better. Um, and, and on you go. Um, uh, plain, unvarnished authoritarianism, communism in South Yemen, um, Arab socialism in, um, in Syria and Iraq, they all pretty much failed to legitimize themselves by uh, providing good governance. Um, economic opportunity, education, security, um, uh, all played second or third while these, these leaders would kind of hold up the shiny bobble of um, Israel and the Palestinians uh, and saying to their people, you're going to endure hardship, you're going to give us opportunities for unparalleled corruption, uh, and it's all going to be in the name of uh, uh, the Palestinian cause. Uh, something very different. So, uh, you know, that was the message. Uh, um, be prepared for these sacrifices uh, because we need the money. Um, in, in Asia, very different kind of conversation from rulers to their people. South Korea, well, gang, uh, you're going you're gonna to lose most of your political freedom, um, but in return, you're going to get a better life for your families. Uh, uh, we're going to push economic development. We're going to push education um, so that your kids do have a better life. And oh, by the way, in that process, we'll be moving away from autocracy. Uh, Oversimplified, obviously, but it, it's, 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 it is very much worth, uh, worth bearing in mind. Um, so the good news here is the next ism, the current ism, is almost certainly going to fail, too. It, it's already failing. Um, that would be Islamism as practiced by Islamic State. Um, Al-Qaeda is a different matter, as we heard this morning. Um, uh, you know, they are not claiming ground, uh, uh, simply ideas. It won't affect them, but Islamic State is going to fall. There's, there's, there's no question. Uh, oh, and by the way, it is all in a name. We say ISIL. Uh, uh, that's Dawla Islamiyya fil Iraq wa Syria, the Islamic State in Iraq and Syria. Then they ditched that and it became Dawla Islamiyya fil Iraq wa Sham. Sham being the Arabic for um, greater Syria that also includes Jordan, Palestinian territories, Israel, and Lebanon. So they're getting more expansionist. And it ended, as your slide pointed out, just Dawla Islamiyya. 
uh, no territorial qualifications. They're thinking big. Uh, uh, but they're not going to get there. So we can feel good about that. Uh, but unless the underlying causes of misgovernance are addressed, just like Islamic State became sort of Al-Qaeda in Iraq 2.0, something is going to emerge behind the Islamic State. Um, I don't know what it is, but it is not going to be good. Um, until governance is repaired, uh, we're on a long, steep downslope in the region. Uh, I am fond of concluding depressing lectures like this by uh, saying, uh, I'll, I'll end on a positive note. You're going to look back on today uh, with, with nostalgia, um, with real regret that uh, this day passed, because in three months it's going to be a lot worse. Uh, and sadly, I've been right every time I said that. Uh, um, so a couple of other quick points. Um, We've talked in uh, various ways about the Middle East Cold War, Saudi Arabia and Iran, overshadowing the various hot wars in the, uh, in the area. And I haven't heard it here, but uh, in popular imagination, there is now the view that, um, well, the Sunnis and the Shia have been fighting each other for centuries. They'll fight each other for centuries more. Uh, yeah, well, not exactly. Uh, True, sectarianism has been forever present in the Middle East, but it only had a pattern of violence, really, in Lebanon. And that's, Lebanon is sui generis. Uh, I spent six years there. I can give you the long form if you'd like. Uh, well, Nixon doctrine, uh, getting us out of Vietnam and definitely not wanting to get us into another one, that it would not be the United States who's going to send forces to preserve the international order. Uh, we are going to develop relationships with key regional powers. Uh, we will train them. We will equip them. We will provide economic as well as military aid where necessary. And they will keep the peace uh, with our support, but not with our troops. Uh, the primary example of that in play was, uh, was the Middle East, where we went to two powers, Iran under the Shah and Saudi Arabia. And they became the twin pillars of, um, of regional security. Uh, it wasn't the Navy of the Ayatollahs who seized three islands from um, <clears throat> the UAE. It was, it was the Shah's Navy. Uh, and during the 70s, uh, he deployed basically a mechanized infantry brigade into Oman at the request of the Sultan to put down the uh, so-called Dofar Rebellion in, <laughs> in um, Western Oman. Uh, did the Saudis go to battle stations? No, they facilitated the deployment. Uh, so, uh, so, you know, Saudi, the, the leader of the, the Sunni cause, uh, Iran, uh, the greatest Shia nation, it, friends, it, it, isn't about, it isn't about religion here. It's about power and power differentials. Um, so, you know, just keep that in mind when uh, just about any time anybody tells you it's been going on for centuries, odds are it hasn't. Um, 
but it comes back to that historical perspective. You've you got to know what happened the day before yesterday. Um, uh, and the Iran that uh, wants to burn half of Israel, that would be the same Iran that during the 1970s hosted uh, what was virtually an Israeli embassy, um, headed by one of the great strategic uh, thinkers of the last century, in my view, Yuri Lebrani, who uh, uh, went on to be national security advisor, sadly the philosophical architect of the 1982 invasion of Lebanon. Um, so let me just conclude with that, and then we can have a, uh, a lively discussion. I, I learned basically two things uh, in almost 40 years of a career, in, well, only in the Middle East. You know, that was a good pace for me. I absorb one thing every couple of decades and then, then, then move on to something new. So, uh, um, so, so here's what I learned. Be careful what you get into, um, particularly if it involves a military intervention. That uh, You will be setting in motion events you cannot possibly foresee uh, that will lead to 30th and 40th order consequences as we see now in Iraq, uh, uh, almost 14 years, 14 years this month, uh, of our intervention. It's not that we planned poorly for it, uh, it's that we never could have foreseen, no one could foresee what we were setting in motion. So careful what you get into. You've you got to make the judgment, is the good you're trying to achieve or the bad you're seeking to eradicate worth the enormous burden of uncertainty you're going to have to shoulder for a long time. I didn't learn that in Iraq. I, I, I learned that in Lebanon. Uh, I was <clears throat> on my first tour there when the Israelis invaded with a, certainly a green light from us. Uh, who could argue with it? You know, uh, wrap up the Palestinian terrorist groups who were carrying out operations in Israel's north, some really awful commando raids and, and not to mention the periodic shelling. Who, who could argue with that? Well, law of unintended consequences. Basically, the Israelis got rid of the PLO as a capable, uh, non-conventional uh, fighting force. Uh, but what did Syria and Iran do? Um, it's kind of interesting. I think it was 1981 that uh, Ayatollah Khomeini hold, held his nose and said the Alawis are true Shia. Uh, well, they're not. I mean, heterodox is about as good as you can get. If, uh, and that's another point on the, um, uh, the Houthis. You know, uh, they're not mainstream Shia. They're Zaydis. Uh, so the theological or ideological connection with Iran, it just isn't there. Also worth noting, uh, as we listen to the Saudis, that uh, the Houthis sided with Saudi Arabia against Egypt uh, and Egypt's Yemeni allies in the 60s when the Egyptians had that spectacularly unsuccessful military intervention in Yemen. You know, you got to know this stuff. Uh, so what did we get? Um, we got something far worse that we're dealing with today. We, we got Hezbollah and its offshoots in different places. I mean, the Palestinians couldn't even have dreamed of blowing up an embassy and then blowing up a marine barracks in Lebanon six months later, way beyond them. 
but for the forerunner of, of Hezbollah with that solid Syrian-Iranian backing, definitely doable. Um, the other thing I learned was uh, be careful what you get out of. Um, that disengagement uh, can have even graver consequences than your original engagement. Um, uh, that too came from Lebanon. Now, arguably, there, you know, there was probably little rational choice except to do what uh, President Reagan ordered, which was uh, to um, move the, uh, <clears throat> the Marines back on board ship and then, after a decent interval, steam off into the night. Uh, but what the Syrians and the Iranians absorbed from that was that uh, if you cause them pain, they will leave. They were basic, when I landed in um, Baghdad, March, another happy anniversary, uh, March 2007, it was like I had traveled not just from Islamabad to Baghdad, but back in time a quarter of a century. Um, uh, we were literally under fire uh, from that same coalition, Iran and Syria. Roles were reversed, the Iranians were the dominant uh, factor in Iraq, Syrians in support, it had been the other way around in Lebanon, but they were taking it right out of that playbook, and it almost worked. Uh, you know, we teetered, in 07, we teetered on the edge of a congressional vote to cut funding, which would have forced withdrawal. Um, and I uh, just delighted to uh, see someone from uh, the study of war, Institute for the Study of War, and uh, they have done spectacular work. It's the first thing I turn to when I'm trying to figure out what goes on in the region. But they also got out there the case for a precipitate withdrawal, um, uh, which we then not precipitate, but we did, and with the consequences in part that we see, uh, we see today. So, um, you know, with your permission, uh, Professor, I think we could turn it over to questions. There's a whole lot of stuff I didn't cover, uh, uh, like the history of agriculture in Mesopotamia. And, uh, um, we, we didn't talk about Pakistan and Afghanistan. I, again, ambassador in both countries. Uh, um, happy to talk about that or anything else on your mind. Great. Let's open it up at this point to uh, questions. We have someone with a microphone. Who'd like to go first? Thank you, Ambassador. <laughs> Thank you, Ambassador, for your remarks. Um, you know, one of the consistent themes of the day seems to be partnerships and coalitions. Uh, Colonel Houston's uh, quote of by, through, and with uh, certainly stuck with me as a, a focal point of U.S. engagement uh, in the region that we're talking about today. It hasn't always been the case that the full extent of our partnerships has been publicly acknowledged often by the partners. Uh, are, are you satisfied with that sort of arrangement where a state that invites, uh, perhaps secretly or covertly, the United States to use force within its territory, but publicly denies uh, that it has consented, are you satisfied that that sort of arrangement has always served U.S. long-term interests? Yeah, dear God, I mean, the only thing I can think of that would be worse than an overt um, intervention would be, would be a covert intervention, and it would not stay secret uh, for any length of time at all. 
so yeah, uh, I've been talking about just bad ideas. That's that's a truly terrible idea. Thank you for uh, the wonderful remarks uh, and for your life's work more generally. Um, the question I want to ask is, what should we do now? Um, but let me be a little bit more concrete because that's grossly unfair. R run for your life would be my yeah, answer. So. Exactly. Um, let me be a little concrete drawing on you know, some of the discussions from this morning. So um, there are two ways, more than two, but two ways that came out this morning of thinking about the nature of the threat and interests that are most at stake for the United States in this region at this time. Um, one way of thinking about it, and this is certainly a way that legal thought and legal reason and law pushes us to, is to think about the nature of the threat that we face in terms of individuals and groups and parties, states, some, but right, organizations, right, entities. Um, and another way of thinking about the nature of the threat we face is in terms of isms or theologies or um, movements or something that's a little less concrete, right? Uh, that makes it a lot harder for law, but in strategic terms, right, if that's that's the better way to think about it, I want to think about it uh, from that perspective. So I guess I'm interested um, in the way you think about how to characterize uh, the threat we face in this area. And then secondly, talk about a categorical change of sorts from Truman to 2009 and then 2009 forward. What, if you can, setting aside various military interventions that we might have pursued, what should we have been doing? What should we be doing now, non-militarily, in this region to reassert or to assert greater leadership? Yeah, well, great questions. I'll, I'll start with the second one. Um, I was asked before the election what advice I would, what three pieces of advice would I have for the next president? And I said, um, engage, repeated three times. Uh, and by this, I'm not talking about military engagement. Uh, I'm talking about political engagement. Uh, you know, our core Middle East strategy was set in motion in February 1945. Um, uh, FDR meeting with Ibn Saud in Great Bitter Lake aboard the USS Quincy. Uh, the transaction then was oil for security. Uh, we provide the security, they would provide the oil. Um, through various changes, that really endured all the way up through 2008. Um, yeah, kind of a kingpin. Now we don't need Middle Eastern oil anymore, but our allies sure do. Um, so. You know, I would recommend to this administration what actually President Trump's been doing. Get on the phone. Send your key secretary, state, defense, get them on the road. Um, reaffirm that um, we are an engaged superpower. Um, listen to them. Ask them what their fears and aspirations are. And on that basis, see if you can, going back to your point, see, uh, you know, re-knit what I think are pretty key uh, partnerships. Uh, yeah, I look, I know about Saudi Arabia, I know about Egypt, I mean, they're not the poster children for 
uh, human rights. Uh, but we don't have a choice between supporting democracies mm -hmm. or supporting autocracies. I mean, there is only one um, Middle East institutional democracy. Uh, that would be Israel. Of course, that's in the Euro European Command, AOR. Uh, uh, it's between order and disorder. You know, that's, that's the choice. Uh, Iran is the uh, patron saint of disorder in terms of, say, the, uh, uh, the popular mobilization forces, the um, intervention in Yemen. Uh, uh, so let's talk to the forces of order and see what we collectively can do. Um, you know, one of the lowest moments for me in 2015 was one that was little remarked. It was the, um, uh, the Saudi UAE initiation of the air war in Yemen. Um, uh, why did I, why was I so upset by that? Was it because it was uh, tactically and strategically idiotic? No. Uh, for the first time uh, since that relationship was forged in 1945, the Saudis didn't consult with us. They didn't say, we're thinking of this, what do you think? They informed us that the war is on. I think we had 72 hours notice, if I uh, uh, recall. Uh, well, that, that would have been unthinkable in an era of U.S. leadership. Uh, so I think we need to get back on a, uh, a stable footing with, um, with countries like Egypt, uh, I saw General Votel's uh, uh, comments after his meeting with uh, President Sisi saying, we've got to get Bright Star going again. That's the preeminent uh, every two-year military exercise. Uh, and I think he's right. Because uh, if, you, if you want constructive change in other people's societies, uh, you are not going to get it by saying you are really icky people and we are not going to talk to you until you do something better. You've got to build the relationship first and give them the confidence that they may be able to take some other steps. And I've totally forgotten your first question. Um, well, the first thing to do is uh, not overblow it. Um, the Middle East is important, uh, but it is not an existential threat to us. Um, places with nuclear weapons are an existential threat to us. So I, I know where it comes out in the DOD hierarchy. It's number three, the Middle East. After uh, Russia slash China, North Korea, then the Middle East. So everybody take a deep breath and, uh, you know, it's serious, uh, but it, it does not threaten our existence uh, uh, as a country. It, it is important to take a step back and look at what's going on. Um, uh, so the Middle East has always been tumultuous, you know, wars, revolutions, civil wars here and there. But we're in a period that we've never seen before. Um, uh, major state failure. I mean, you've got failed, completely failed states in, in, in Libya, in Syria, in Yemen, Iraq teeters. Afghanistan's a little farther back from the brink, but they can see it from there. Uh, 
And with the failure of states, you get the rise of non-state actors. Uh, again, not new. Uh, the Palestinians, uh, uh, particularly after 1970, um, uh, Hezbollah, since the early 80s, it's always been out there. But now it's on steroids, because ungoverned space quickly gets filled by um, generally some not very nice elements. Uh, so to take a look at this, you know, pattern, haven't seen state failure before, um, with the exception of, of Lebanon, but they pulled themselves back together. Not sure these countries will. Um, so kind of what is a post-World War II era <coughs> approach to the region look like, and how does it deal with failing states and non-state actors? That's what I would put out there. Um, as a way of thinking about it and as a way of engaging uh, uh, both um, allies and adversaries. Uh, I will just say one thing on something nobody asked about, but it's important to me, so you're going to have to hear it. Um, Pakistan and Afghanistan. So the Soviets invade, 79. Uh, we get together with the Saudis for the money. Uh, the Pakistanis for the space and permission to train. And the three of us really built a pretty formidable um, anti-Soviet jihad. Um, and it worked. But then what happened? Um, we were done. Uh, we could see the Afghan civil war coming uh, when the Mujahideen groups no longer had the uh, unifying target of the Soviets. They'd turn on each other which they did, um, and we didn't need Pakistan anymore. So in about the space of a year, Pakistan went from being the most allied of allies to the most sanctioned of adversaries. You know, one stroke of the pen. There was something called the Pressler Amendment that uh, uh, outlawed provision of any type of assist, uh, assistance, economic or military, to a country that had publicly declared it was pursuing a nuclear weapons program. Well, I mean, the Pakistanis have been saying that publicly for like 15 years. It's hardly a stop press. But we stopped getting waivers, and all of our assistant programs were shut down. So they have a hellacious civil war on their border. They got no US support, and they can't move the country. Um, so we come back after 9-11. After Toward the end of my tour, when I'd really gotten to know some senior Pakistanis well, uh, one of them said, look, you know what happened in um, the beginning of the 90s? Uh, that was an existential moment for us. Um, now you're telling us to come down hard on the Taliban, arrest them, police them up, force them out, kill them, whatever? Yeah, well, we don't think so. And we don't think so because we know you. Uh, you come in, you got all kinds of good stuff to, to offer us. Um, we sign on, and then you leave, because that's what you Americans do. Um, and we are not about to be left with a, um, uh, the, the Taliban as a mortal enemy. We got enough. Uh, so yeah, we're hedging our bets, and we're hedging our bets because of your style of policy. Uh, I got that just about that bluntly from Kiani when he was still ISI chief. And is it, is it right? Well, you can certainly take it apart. 
but it is fundamentally an article of faith with, with them. So uh, again, careful what you get into, careful what you get out of and, and uh, how you do it. Once again, thank you for the remarks. Um, so a constant theme of what you said is that when one threat or group or entity is removed, something worse fills that gap. That was, you mentioned that with the PLO in Lebanon, Al-Qaeda in Iraq, and Islamic State, and then you ended the initial remarks with, when Islamic State's gone, something worse will come along. And that goes into what you said about the law of unintended consequences. My question is, how do you act and try to minimize the worst things that will come up down the road? Because the thing about unintended consequences is that they are, by nature, unintended and unexpected. At least by us. <clears throat> um, we'd go back to Colonel Houston's point in his presentation. Uh, uh, you know, it's far better to do things uh, uh, in coalition than on your own. Uh, and that is why I hope this administration really is going to re-engage. Re um, we would probably learn a useful thing or two. Um, the uh, people of the region actually know more about it than we do. <clears throat> so what do they see as a threat? Uh, and equally important, how, how do they see the means of countering that threat? I, I don't think we need any more um, made-in-the-USA solutions. Um, and I would just, because this is stuff I've heard in the Middle East, I'm sure many of the rest of you have, uh, that with a basically tactical approach to Islamic State, um, push them out of Iraq, then um, uh, reduce uh, uh, Raqqa, and uh, mission accomplished. Well, you know, Islamic State is not the cause of the problems of the area, it's a symptom of the problems of the area. And we couldn't, with 180,000 troops when I was in Iraq, we could not completely finish Al-Qaeda in Iraq because of governance issues. The Sunnis were asking themselves, uh, is Al-Qaeda actually worse than uh, a Shia-led ascendancy? Now, of course, they're asking themselves, dear God, we've now got the popular mobilization units. Uh, uh, you know, if Iran is bad, these guys are seen as far worse. So. Uh, you can't treat it as a purely tactical problem. These are, these are fundamental strategic issues. Um, and then, without betraying any state secrets, because I don't know any anymore, uh, the, the General Mattis on Monday briefed uh, the president on ISIS options. Well, if you want it quick, uh, you're going to have to rely primarily on the Kurds, the YPG. And incidentally, there is no question, at least in my mind, that the YPG is PKK. So how are the Turks going to react to a PKK-led force to uh, topple Islamic State in Raqqa? Not well. Um, we're already seeing the reports. I, I, think you, uh, uh, I think this is Institute for the Study of War to check, that the Turks are sounding like um, they may reattack Manbij. Uh, 
to kill and expel the forces we're funding. Um, so, and I think that's a warning uh, about Raqqa. Um, and there is no way you can do it in the foreseeable future in Raqqa without a substantial Kurdish force. Cannot do it. The Turks are training, or say they're training, a fairly significant <coughs> um, um, Syrian force in Turkey. Well, the latest I heard, these are young men who are being taught how to shoot an automatic weapon. Um, there is <coughs> my military colleagues would have a better idea of this than I do. Uh, how long is it before you learn how to shoot that weapon that you're going to be proficient in urban warfare? Um, I, be measured in years, not months. So there is no alternative to the, uh, uh, to the Kurds. And what are the implications of that? <coughs> Again, I would suggest to you not good. So uh, I would hope they'll look at this holistically uh, from Washington. Um, uh, what do we really, really need to do? What are the consequences of different courses of action? And how many will stand with us, particularly in the region, under, under what circumstances? Mr. Ambassador, thank you very much.